Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Welcome to Tell Me a Story I Don't Know, captivating and revealing interviews with top sports personalities and their connections to Chicago. They regale you with memorable and entertaining stories, some hilarious, some emotional, but all of them well worth your time. I'm George Hoffman, and please make sure you subscribe to Tell Me a Story I Don't Know on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, and the TuneIn app. Tell Me a Story I Don't Know is sponsored by Vienna Beef, makers of Chicago's hot dog and a Chicago institution since 1893. Find them at ViennaBeef.com. And by the Polina Market, Chicago's premier purveyors of fine meats and so much more since 1949. Find them at PolinaMarket.com. This week we feature longtime award-winning columnist and novelist Rick Tellender. What I've been able to accomplish as a writer, I would say 50% is skill and i would say 40 percent is just studying and learning and reading because reading is the flip side of writing if you don't read there's no way you can be a good writer and 10 percent is absolute utter desire to do it to, to want it it's you know deep inside it's all i ever wanted to do if he wasn't writing stories, columns, or books, one of which actually turned into a movie, Rick Tallender was featured in groundbreaking television and even took a shot at sports talk radio. His resume speaks for itself, including well-deserved accolades, and his opinions are loud and clear. There are also two other certainties. He loves to read and chop on hot dogs. So, Rick Tallender, tell me a story I don't know. All right, George, I'm going to start with back when I was a youth in Peoria, Illinois, and I was working with my good buddy Bill Blair in the summers at the uh, Peoria Cemetery. It was a huge cemetery, and um, we were in charge of putting up old tombstones that had fallen over, and this went all the way back to the Civil War and before. It was a huge cemetery, rolling hills and all that. At any rate, we worked. We had our own little Jeep, drove around. We'd find these huge stones. We were getting ready for high school football, so... We thought it was very cool to lift and push really big things. And sometimes we just sit underneath a tree uh, when it was really hot and just lean against some tombstone that was uh, marble or granite. Very cool. And just look out over the, the vista down to the Illinois River and not do much at all because nobody knew where the hell we were because this cemetery was so huge. At any rate, we'd get off for lunch and that far away was Lou's Hot Dog Stand. And I think it's pretty well known among sports writers that I have an addiction to hot dogs. Uh, so I can't be near them <laughs> around. I'll just, I just go wild. But we would go there and I'd be so hungry because I'm 16 years old, seven, maybe even 17, but 16 definitely. And um, order one hot dog after the other until it almost became obscene. And I would go around to the back of the place, the little uh, loose hot dog stand. And I had used my pocket knife and I put a, a little notch in the wall for each hot dog I ate. And finally, I quit doing that because I was covering up the whole back of the place. But I would eat as many as six, seven, eight hot dogs at a time in these oh huge gosh. beers. And um, then go back to work. So anyway, that's where that particular, you know, you want to know where somebody's drug addiction or whatever came from. That's where my hot dog addiction came from. It, it is interesting to know two things. Number one, this podcast is sponsored by Vienna Beef. And oh, number, George. And number two, I was talking to a mutual friend of ours in this business, David Schuster, who said, oh, ask him about how he eats so many hot dogs. Yeah, well, <laughs> yeah, Schuster knows. Uh, listen, I had uh, just, just for, you know, just to show everybody. They were starting to watch me at the U.S. Cellular, now guaranteed rate, because they bring the hot dogs out, I think, after like the third, third inning. inning. That's right. Yeah. I'd be very hungry by the third inning. And I started eating hot dogs. You're in a baseball game! Baseball game, you eat hot dogs! <laughs> You're not going to sell 
And then people like Paul Sullivan would start to remark on this. And they start to, I noticed they're starting to take um, snapshots of me with my hot dogs. It's getting a little offensive, <laughs> you know. One day, there was actually a rain delay, but that was irrelevant. People say that was the reason, but it wasn't. I was just hungry. I got up to like five or six hot dogs, and uh, people are watching and commenting. They're even tweeting this stuff. Okay, so seven, eight, nine hot dogs, you know, and then I had 10 just to show everybody, and I was, I was full, really, but then I had 11, and then I had a 12th one just showing off, just to prove it. And I, I guarantee you that is a record that will survive me, I hope. <laughs> well, I was just going to think that. I'm thinking so to myself, good. what is your stomach saying to you at this point? It's, it's The white flag has been raised, <laughs> and it's over. It's just surrendered. Uh, do you know, now, Rick I, Morrissey, my fellow columnist, had told me, he said, Rick, this will kill you. You know that. But I don't do it that often anymore because there is no hot dog stand nearby where I live and I try to avoid hot dogs as best I can because it's not a pretty sight, but there's just something about it. By God, if Vienna hot dogs would hire me, they, I wouldn't have to make up anything. I'll sit there <laughs> on air and just eat one after the other. They can pay me. Oh, hell, I'll pay them to do it. <laughs> you know, I'm going to bet that there are some people who read your column in the Chicago Sun-Times who have absolutely no idea you played college football at Northwestern. So tell me a story I don't know about that time some 50 years ago. Well, the thing that comes to my mind most of all <clears throat> is that the period in history when that, when that was, it, in certain ways it's similar to last summer, the Black Lives Matter, the, the kind of turbulence caused by the, uh, you know, basically stirred up by the insanity of, of a uh, Donald Trump a regime, and I'll call it a regime, but back then Richard Nixon was president and the Vietnam War was in full, uh, its full infamous glory, if you will. And so there was this incredible social and um, uh, cultural conflict going on at the same time that I was trying to play football, just like my buddies and I, the way it had been done for, you know, 90 years or almost uh, in America play football you know that you're dedicated to it but to play football at that time it meant something it meant you were kind of ipso facto establishment you believed in the war you believed in law and order you believed in all these things which was not part of what the game actually was there was always this pressure uh and our coach alex agassi was a former marine in world war ii and i mean this was one tough dude he was an All-American in football in college at two different universities. Started at um, Illinois and then went to the war and came back and was an All-American at Purdue. And it might have been vice versa, but I know at those two universities, he had a Purple Heart. I think he had a couple of them. He'd been shot. He was on, um, he was in the Pacific, uh, at just uh, on Okinawa. I believe it was Okinawa. It was just horrible um, battles. And here we are at the same time on campus where there are protests against the Vietnam War. And all the uh, protests against the, um, or the Democratic Convention was in Chicago, the police riot as they called it. Hundreds of marchers and dozens of policemen were injured. Restraint was absent on both sides. This was later called a police riot. All these things we were trying to play football against as a backdrop. We had our spring game in the spring of 1970. And this is shortly after the Kent State shootings. You know, Four Dead in Ohio, the uh, Buffalo Springfield song. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the shootings at uh, Jackson State. And Mike Adamley, who was on my team, uh, was, was a great player. He was from Kent, Ohio. He actually knew at least one of the National Guardsmen who may or may not have fired a rifle to kill one of those students. And we didn't know if we were going to have the spring game. Uh, Alex Agassiz uh, told me later that there'd been bomb threats uh, phoned in. I believe we changed the time of our spring game to avoid any kind of conflict. So all that was going on at the same time that we were trying to just play, you know, beat the hell out of Michigan State and Ohio State and, you know, all these 
teams you're playing, Iowa, Wisconsin, Minnesota, Indiana, Illinois, and keep your mind on it, George, was incredibly difficult. And that, that's what I remember most about college football. You know, you mentioned Mike Animley, who was one of your teammates back then, and he, of course, is going through a rather tough time in his life. Tell me a story I don't know about him then and now. Well, I'll tell you this. When I came in as a freshman at Northwestern in 1967, I w- remember being out there where the, uh, the coaching, uh, Anderson Hall, where the, where the coaching offices are, and school hadn't started. We come in very early, way before the students, and I see this, this little kid uh, there and he's you know he's kind of got a dark crew cut whatever and somebody said yeah that's Mike Adamley he's you know people said well he's going to be he's a pretty good football player and I looked at him I thought well if this guy is 15 years old I'll eat my hat he looked like a little baby I've never seen anything like it even now you know when he was on TV doing his um, uh, when he was a sportscaster people thought well god this guy must have had a facelift and dyed his hair and everything no <laughs> He always looked like he could have been my son. I didn't look like an old guy either, but I was amazed. I thought, I'm ruined. This is going to be a star of our football team, this kid. And uh, what, what a great player he was. All-American. He won the silver football our, um, junior or senior year, one of those years, being the best player in the Big Ten. And um, what, a, uh, what a mistake that was to judge the book by the cover. He's a wonderful guy. It, it has to be rough to see what he is going through now. Yeah, it's very tough. Uh, we talk. Mike is a dear friend. Um, I know how he, part of how he got his, uh, the brain damage, which has led to what he, you know, even though you can only diagnose it for certain in a deceased person's brain, but it's virtually certainly as CTE, as dementia. You have all the... Um signs that are concurrent with CTE. And I said, I told the doctor, I said, what do you mean? I said, they're supposed to be dead before you can be able to diagnose that. And they, they said, well, at this point in time, we really don't know, you know. I said, well, I'm not going to be, I'll be the first person who stays alive. How about that, you know? And he, uh, he talks, he says, you know, it's my, Rick, it's my executive function that's off. And we'll laugh about it because he has such a great sense of humor and he's so self-deprecating and so willing to put himself out there not to hide uh, he he hates it he he has uh you know it's not gonna ever get better he struggles with um uh, short-term memory things like that and recently before covid hit we were actually doing stuff together we i'd go to his place to his house and um sing we would sing songs i played guitar he enjoyed that he had a great time and we were talking about doing a uh a show, like a little half hour, 45 minute telling uh, kind of a story that I would write out. We'd have cue cards and everything because his memory is very difficult. But he, he, he's a great singer. He's a great entertainer. I said, Mike, think about it. What are you really? You're a ham. I'm a ham too. We like to ham it up. <laughs> so we were going to do like um, top hats and canes and stuff and sing a couple tunes like that and just have a lot of fun. And then COVID hit. So you know, if if he's okay, if we ever get out of this thing, I'd like to do that again because I owe so much to him because that's how good a football player he was. I, I can guarantee you, we went six and one in the Big Ten my senior year, and I, I can guarantee you that three of those wins are 100% because of him. He rushed for 317 yards against Wisconsin. I mean, uh, and he carried the ball again and again and again, and he couldn't bring the guy down. And he took one blow after the other. You could hear them, just incredible head hits. And just the toughest guy you've ever seen. And he paid the price for it. So I owe him so much, but I hope someday we can get back to doing that. Because by God, it'll be fun. We'll sell tickets. We'll, we'll invite you, George. We will do it someplace. And uh, it'll be, hopefully it'll be hilarious. When did you know you could write and in a style that would eventually gain you such national acclaim. And who inspired you to be what you are today? I never really knew. And I think that's one of the things that is part of what has driven me in writing. The thought that maybe, you know, I'm not worthy of it. That I, I don't have any particular skill. Nobody suddenly anoints you and says, hey, boy, you know what? You're a writer. 
I had teachers that periodically would say, you know, that's really well written, Rick. But that was about it. I had other teachers at Northwestern, had a couple that taught me, you know, absolutely nothing. Uh, most of what my book, what my writing skills, if I, such as they are, came from reading. I've read, literally, George, I've read thousands of books. Reading, I probably read six to eight hours a day. And I did starting from back when I was a kid, not that much. It's a skill, but it's also a craft. Nobody is born knowing how to do, say, silversmithing or great woodwork or cabinet making or painting. But most of us, you have this talent. Now, you know, so much of it is, do you want to? I would say my, what I've been able to accomplish as a writer, I would say 50% is skill. And I would say 40% is just studying and learning and reading because reading is the flip side of writing. If you don't read, there's no way you can be a good writer. And 10% is absolute, utter desire to do it, to, to want it. It's, you know, deep inside, it's all I ever wanted to do. If the printed word disappears from this planet as being a form of communication, well, I'll go down with it. Yeah, I was a writer. That's what I did. That's what I wanted to do. That was my life. That's what I dedicated it to. And, um, you know, adios. <laughs> well, you wrote, and it wasn't that long after you left Northwestern, you wrote Heaven is a Playground, which was 1976. It was about basketball in the playgrounds of Brooklyn. It was a bestseller, featured among others, Albert King and Fly Williams. And uh, it was eventually turned into a movie with the setting here in Chicago some 15 years later. So I'm wondering back then if you ever envisioned what that piece of literary excellence would turn into. No, absolutely not. It wasn't even going to get made into a book, George. The, the original company went under. Uh, it got sent to another one, these small presses. I think one of them was called M. Evans. And then there was another one, and nobody wanted it. I had gotten a, uh, a letter from an editor in New York, this small press, and said, Rick, how would you like to turn that story you did for Sports Illustrated into a book? And I thought that, that God had parted the clouds and tapped me and said, Rick, your dream is right here and I'm offering it to you. So I wrote back to that guy, this is way before the internet, said, I signed a contract immediately. I didn't care what it said, nothing. I didn't care if I got paid. I did get paid. I got, um, what did I get for that? I got $5,000 and $2,500 up front and $2,500 afterwards. I lived on that $2,500 for you know, at least half a year. That, that money, that's a lot more than it sounds like. I, I would multiply that by five now. You know, so $12,000, $15,000. I lived on that, no problem. I didn't want anything, but I wanted to write this book. I went to Brooklyn, but there was probably nobody was going to publish it. Probably, well, hell, I didn't know how to write a book. <laughs> you know, I remember sitting there because I this was 1974, the summer of 74 and 73 when I'd first gone, I was 24 years old. And I was writing it at age 24 and 25. How do you write a book? I mean, I read a lot, but it's like, well, damn, what do you do? And um, so I had to come up, well, a beginning, a middle, and an end, I guess. And I figured out ways to do that. But I honestly believed that um, it would never see the light of day. And it almost didn't. It was that close. And I also know the editor, when it finally was accepted by St. Martin's Press, they said, well, you know, the book's okay. But one thing you have to do, you have to change that title. We don't like that title. And I'll say for once in my life, or maybe the earliest time in my life, I just said, no, no, I'm putting my foot down here. I think I want to do that. I think I want to keep the title Heaven as a Playground, which might have been the smartest thing I ever did. Mm -hmm. uh, but no, George, I had no idea that it would even exist uh, at all as a book, as a published book, that it would continue. It almost disappeared at one point, was uh, revived by um, a, a wonderful editor named Jeff Newman at, Holt, or at uh, Simon & Schuster with a press called Fireside Press. They brought it back and it's now been in, the fifth edition just came out. There have been multiple printings and it's uh, Skyhorse Press has it now. And, you know, I just did an update for it just this last year 
um, catching up with the guys from back in the playground, even going off to see good old Fly Williams, my buddy, wow. at, um, up in uh, Attica, New York, in the prison. So the movie, the setting was here in Chicago. Unfortunately, it got panned. What did you think of it? Those guys are idiots. Yeah? Maybe you're idiots now. But I had this dream, taking kids from my playground all the way to the pros. You think I'm ready for the pros? Just not sure they're ready for you. <laughs> and I'm here to ensure that my client gets a fair deal. Fair? Come on for me. I'm building an empire. Well, the guy who did it, you have to understand the, um, uh, how hard it is to make a movie. So Randy Freed was a director of this movie. He'd gone to Southern Cal. He'd won the student Oscar. He went through so many hoops and so much difficulty to get this thing made at all because nobody wanted to make it. You know, Heaven is a Playground was not, it didn't fit into anything back then. Nobody wanted movies about uh, black, you know, with black actors. They didn't want black athletes. They didn't want anything about black anything unless it was going to be uh, some kind of, black exploitation movie, you know, one of those cornball things they had back in the day. Uh, and so, you know, Randy had um, Michael Jordan ready to play the lead role. He had all kinds of things going on. And then just, you know, there's just one tough thing happened after the other. So when he finally made the movie, he was constrained by time, by money, uh, by place. Some of the guys are supposed to be playing 15 and 16 year olds that had taken so long. One of the guys is now 28 years old. <laughs> so <Not good. laughs> you know, I know the issues of making a movie. Yeah. In fact, I just got a call yesterday from a guy, second time from a guy in Hollywood. They're they want to try to you know redo Heaven as a Playground. How and, about that? Yeah. So uh, you know, Randy did the best he could. It was, should have been done in New York. Should have had scenes on subway. Should have all those kind of things. But uh, doing it in Cabrini Green with real real tough time constraints was that was tough. Tell Me a Story I Don't Know is sponsored by the Polina Market. And with the grilling season upon us, you have no excuse not to shop there. It's been Chicago's premier market for the finest meats and more since 1949. And it's gotten bigger and better. How about chicken and fish in your basket to go along with their absolutely mouth-watering steaks such as the tomahawk, porterhouse, and wagyu. And if you like brats and sausages, add that to your basket and head right to the grill. Then there's the vast frozen food section where everything is freshly made, including chicken pot pies, meatloaf, and pulled pork. Besides the addition of fresh seafood, the Polina Market is now serving sandwiches. It also has a solid array of wonderful wines and beers. Plus, they've expanded again, making the in-store experience even more satisfying. Remember, you can still order online, and you can have it shipped wherever you live. I've been shopping here for 37 years, and with good reason. The Polina Market is as good as it gets, and conveniently located at 3501 North Lincoln Avenue in Chicago. Check them out on their impressive website at polinamarket.com. The easiest way to hear more great guests on Tell Me a Story I Don't Know is to follow me on social media at George Hoffman. That's O-F-M-A-N, just one F, on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And please subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and the free TuneIn app, and wherever you get your podcasts. We return with Rick Tellender on Tell Me a Story I Don't Know. You wrote some wonderful, if not controversial, articles for Sports Illustrated, which back in the 70s, 80s, and 90s really was the Bible of sports writing, and you were one of their top featured writers. So tell me a story I don't know, Rick, whether there was a breakthrough article that helped to send your career soaring. I think one thing that happened was Chicago started to have some great athletes. You know, don't forget the Bears won the Super Bowl in 1985. I had a house right next to Hallis Hall, the field there. And literally, you could look out of the windows onto the field. The field started maybe 15 yards away. Through There's a fence and then some bushes, and that was it. So I could see Waller Payton. You know, I could see the fridge. I could see Gary Fensick. I could see Jim McMahon. I could see Mike Ditka. Even one day, could look out there and saw uh, George Hallis. So think about those wonderful stories. I wrote about Walter Payton, I just, he just fascinated me. Walter was like a little kid in a, in Hercules' body. 
uh, just a great guy. And I remember one time we were doing an addition on our house, uh, putting in a, um, you know, it had four kids and this was a small house to start. We kept adding on, uh, putting in a uh, skylight that went into, well, it's kind of like into a bathroom that we were adding on because we needed another bathroom upstairs. And there was a workman up there and he was sitting on a roof peeking out, you know, sitting out to the top doing some stuff. And he yelled at Ditka. He said, hey, Ditka, why'd you get rid of Duerson? You know, just like yelled it. And <laughs> Ditka looks up at him. This is like in the middle of practice or, um, you know, drills or whatever. And he said, hey, you up there. Use your hammer, not your mouth. <laughs> and, and the guy dropped, him and dropped back in. So Ditka. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you know, and the guy, oh my God, Ditka yelled at me. You know, it's like, well, yeah, yeah. You better be careful, bud. Uh, so anyway, I, all these guys were right there to write about. Uh, you know, um, McMahon and, and uh, uh, Dent and uh, Singletary and Fensick. And, uh, you know, Otis Wilson and Wilbur Marshall, all these guys that, uh, you know, would appear in my stories. And then just at about the same time, starting in 1984, guess who showed up with the Chicago Bulls? So I wrote a lot about Jordan, uh, particularly, it was one of the reasons I left Sports Illustrated, actually. Uh, it re- might have been the main reason I left in 1995, because he had been, uh, he played baseball, and he was, Michael Jordan was on the cover of a Sports Illustrated that said, I think everybody knows about this, or they heard about what Michael felt about it. He showed him in a, I believe he was in either in a White Sox or Birmingham Barons uniform and swinging it at a pitch and missing it by you know a foot and the headline was bag it michael oh yeah michael jordan and uh and the white Sox embarrassed baseball and i thought oh no oh god no you didn't put that as you know you guys in new york please you didn't actually do that and they did and if you know michael as i know him and i think the rest of the world now knows him this guy never forgets if you're a player and you do something to him on the court, oh my God, he is going to, can I swear on this? You can say anything you want. He's going to rip you a new asshole. I mean, Michael Jordan is going to kill you. And we've seen it many times. Well, at that moment, Michael Jordan said um, in his mind, I'm never going to talk to Sports Illustrated again. And he didn't. He didn't. He has not. That was 1994 when that came out. Yep. And I thought, I'm not going to live here and, you know, kind of know Michael. And I wouldn't say we're friends, but we were acquaintances. He knew me. We'd say, hi, I've talked to him. I did a lot of stories with him. I am not going to be banned from talking to, you know, a man who's voted the greatest athlete of the 20th century simply because of, well, you could call it his peevishness or the myopia of this magazine that I love. I love Sports Illustrated, but that cover, you just don't say that about it. And also it wasn't true. There was a strike going on. Michael Jordan was not embarrassing baseball. He was taking a huge risk, a huge chance after being the greatest basketball player ever to try his hand at something he was 90% sure of failing at. And he actually didn't do that bad. If you look at the stats, you come into Major League Baseball Triple A baseball and bat whatever he batted two twenty. You hit some home runs, uh, you know, driving runs. You play in the field. I mean, you saw Tim Tebow couldn't do it. I said that if he decided to stay with baseball, he might have made it. Well, there's others that said that too. He's that good an athlete, and he had played up to about age thirteen or some fourteen, something like that. Then quit. But yes, he did do pretty well. And I remember talking to him. Said, you know, Michael, remember that one time you were. Gonna, there was a force play at second, and instead of sliding in, you kind of kind of made a move, like you could fake the second baseman off the bag, <laughs> like you know, like it's basketball. He, he chuckled. He said, "Yeah, he did," but uh, he was that good an athlete. Yes, he might have made it, but um, I think those stories you asked it way back, George, and then also I was writing about scandals mm-hmm. in college football that uh, was kind of at the tip of the iceberg there with 
just it was getting out of control. Among your celebrated articles, you're mentioning that one was about the NCAA's hypocrisy of not sharing its wealth with student athletes. You wrote that in 1980. Yeah, 1989. So yeah. tell me a story. I don't know whether you're stunned it took this long for the NCAA to act on a story you wrote over 30 years ago. Yeah, and, and you know what, George? I wasn't even new to it because I was reading things from like the Carnegie Report of 1928 saying the same things that I was saying, uh, what, 60 years later and had been said way before that there's just something wrong about this sport that has become a professionalized sport with coaches making making millions of dollars, boosters all over the place, athletic departments with huge budgets. And the only people who are not paid are the athletes. So uh, one thing that a story that people might not know, a lot of this began when a, an athlete, a player at South Carolina named Tommy Chaikin got a hold of me and wanted to tell his story about the steroids that he was taking, teammates were taking that were uh, he was encouraged to take by coaches and how it absolutely led to his physical and mental demise culminating with his uh, suicide attempt. And that story came out in, I want to say 1987 in Sports Illustrated. And uh, it had opened with a big spread of him, a, a painting, an illustration of him, this muscle bound guy with a, uh, sleeveless t-shirt on holding a 357 magnum under his chin ready to pull the trigger so that got a lot of people's attention including a lot of college football players attention when we go to the word steroids in 1988 you refused to submit a baseball hall of fame ballot which caused a kerfuffle by the way one of my favorite words and you did so over <laughs> protest to, in fact, the steroid era. Funny, Rick, guys are still out, uh, still leaving out players today. So tell me a story I don't know. Why you wrote that, and would you write it again today? Well, actually, I didn't start voting until a little bit later, but I did, I did do it one time because uh, it's just kind of completely unclear and uncertain how you vote for somebody who is clearly a cheater. And, you know, Barry Bonds, Sammy Sosa, Mark McGuire, Roger Clemens, uh, you know, it goes, goes on and on with the athletes who have been uh, in, implicated either through the uh, Mitchell report or actually failed drug tests. Manny Ramirez, I mean, um, A-Rod, talk about somebody, here's a guy who's been uh, celebrated is now on TV. He was busted so many times, it's ridiculous. And if steroids are not legal, and even these players say, well, you know, we didn't test for them. And I always say, well, you know what? If they were such a great thing, why were you so secretive about it? Why, when we ask you if you took steroids, did you get outraged? Why were you sneaking off like some little, you know, creepy creep in the night to shoot your steroids with your buddies in your ass and you got these big boils and stuff you got zits on your back why tell me about that but um you know listen they want to make steroids legal then that's fine but the hall of fame does not have any criteria that we can vote on and i that that really upset me how do we judge these things i can't be um i don't have subpoena power i can't drug test anybody i can't prove you're lying these guys were strong men at the circus. And so uh, the, the argument, well, Barry Bonds had Hall of Fame statistics before he started taking steroids. I said, well, that's fine. You know, somebody else can vote him in. I am not. I still vote. I will never vote for these guys. And they say, well, you're missing some. Clearly I am. I can't be certain about things, but the one I am certain about, I don't want that on my, uh, on my record as having voted for Sammy Sosa, Roger Clemens, Barry Bonds. I'm just not going to do it. A younger generation can come along and say, hey, no big deal. They can do it. Tell Me a Story I Don't Know is sponsored by Vienna Beef, makers of Chicago's hot dog and a Chicago institution since 1893. It's grilling season, so what better than throwing some mouth-watering Vienna hot dogs and Polish sausages on the grill? Then drag them through the garden, which includes yellow mustard, onions, relish, tomatoes, sport peppers, pickles, and celery salt. 
I don't know about you, but I'm getting hungry. And look for the new spicy smoked sausage available in your local retail stores. It includes a perfect blend of seasonings such as crushed red peppers and brown sugar, creating a bold and zesty taste. Vienna products are available just about everywhere from restaurants, grocery stores, and the ballpark, Socks and Cubs, museums, and zoos. You can't miss them. Plus, you can purchase them online coast to coast at ViennaBeef.com and Amazon. Vienna also has Farm Acres Chili, Mini Bagel Dogs, condiments, and classic deli meats. Take the word from a guy who grew up on Vienna products. It's the mark of excellence since 1893. Check them out at ViennaBeef.com. In 1985, you are part of a groundbreaking and wildly, wildly popular TV show entitled The Sports Writers on TV, which included, and I say this with all due respect, grizzly veterans such as Bill Gleason, Ben Bentley, and Bill Jouse, and a guy 25 years younger than all of them, Rick Tellender. Tell me a story I don't know why that show worked so well. I think it worked so well because those guys were 100% authentic. There was no makeup. There was no playing to the camera. There was no uh, recorded spiel. There was none of that. What you saw was absolutely real. And, and if you think about it, you had Bill Gleason from the south side of Chicago. Bill Gleason. And you had Ben Bentley from the west side. And Ben Bentley from <laughs> in the white trunks battling out of the, you know, <laughs> he was a ring announcer. And then from the north side, you had the more proper, uh, but still tough as nails, Bill, um, Bill Jouse. Chelsea. But that time had passed. Yeah. And these guys were throwbacks. And they were yeah, if you can't adapt, then you become a dinosaur. And there's nothing more pathetic yeah, than a really dinosaur is. wandering through modern landscapes. And that's when you know? we wonder about Dallas. Look at the high school. Yeah. Yeah. Washington yeah. anymore. Hey, you know, Bill. Of a guy like Veneer. Is yelling at him going to make him? We don't know, but if it does, you yell at him. If not, there's a way to get performance out of Benia and everybody. Well, you just have to remember. Considered, I mean, he's not—he's an old guy and he's doing pretty good. Is he considered a bad guy? He's a good. He's a good. And you know, Joust said one time, Bill Gleason and uh, had fought in World War II. I think he got the—he got like some serious silver silver medal or, or something. He was an uh, infantryman. He was tough as nails. He had that cigar perched in the side of his mouth. And um, uh, Ben had been in World War II also doing something. And Joust was in the Korean War. Of course, I didn't go to Vietnam, but he, he said, well, that's your, your war. And he said, you know what, Tellender? Gleason won his war. We tied ours and you lost yours. <laughs> He said it on air. I mean, this is stuff that's not like, you know, in the back room. <laughs> so they were so authentic that um, I don't think you can create people like that again, because everybody now is just playing to the camera and they powder you up and you do all that. And they say, somebody say, cut, that's long enough. This, we just ran. And as you notice, if you watch any of those old shows, uh, the genius of it was John Roach, the producer. He just, we kept talking and it faded out. The conversation never yeah. ended. Yeah. You know, when you think about it, um, that's how ESPN came up with the sports writers, which many think really was the knockoff of the sports writers on TV, wasn't it? Oh, it absolutely was. It was called, and remember, that was called the sports reporters. Sports reporters, uh, excuse me. Yeah. And ours was the sports writers on TV. We had that name. And yeah, then, yes, they came about after us, much more, uh, you know, professionalized thing done in New York. I was on it many times. And Dick Schapp was the original uh, moderator of that show. And I love Dick Schapp. He helped me learn how to write. He was the editor-in-chief, uh, managing editor of Sport Magazine, which was a monthly back in the day. And I actually wrote for him. And he taught me some just wonderful lessons. He said, Rick, always, you know what people want to see? They want to see scenes, things where they weren't, where they couldn't be there. You're in somebody's living room. Describe that. Put it in there. You're at a game. You're on the field. Describe that. Uh, so anyway, I love doing that with um, with him. He was just a, a, a terrific guy. Dick Schapp died way too young after complications from hip surgery. Uh, but that was a ripoff of our show. There's no question. And, um, you know, we, those guys started George. I mean, um, Bill Gleason, Ben Bentley, 
Bill Jowes and George Langford mm-hmm. from the Tribune. He was from the South. He was on the original sports writers on radio on WGN. And they all had such distinctive voices with George Langford having, he was from the South. And he had this kind of lilting Southern voice. He had Gleason over here and Ben Bentley with that foghorn <laughs> and Bill Joust with his proper educated north side of Chicago uh, thing. You didn't need to see their faces. You could hear their faces. George Langford couldn't do the TV part. And John Roach, the producer with Gleason, they had to think up a fourth. And two things. They needed somebody who was available on Mondays. And I could because I was working for Sports Illustrated and wasn't off covering a team like, you know, some of the uh, uh, beat writers in Chicago. And two, they needed somebody, as Roach always said, who didn't have a prostate problem. So that was me. <laughs> I fit in. You fit in <laughs> like a glove. You I say, also- yes, that was them. <laughs> <laughs> you also tried your hand at Sports Talk Radio at WSCR The Score. That didn't work out all that well. Tell me a story why it didn't. Well, it, it actually, we were doing quite well. I mean, we were getting better and better uh, with, you know, my sidekicks and I, and, you know, uh, Mike Mulligan was a great sidekick. And um, so was Doug Buffone. And I'm trying to think who, um, I, I started with Jay Hood and I like Jay too. Yeah, that was great. But we were, you know, our ratings were just starting to go really up doing very well the last book that had come out had been terrific but it was a four-hour show and I had to get down there so early for me in the morning I had to take a train and I would then write four columns a week and then I would travel on weekends and I was I mean literally it was uh it was going to be the end of me I don't know how I thought I could do that I thought I could I would stay down at the station to write a column sometimes I would leave I'd get home uh on the train at midnight I would get up in the morning at eight, try to read the papers, do whatever, take the train back down, do it all over again, then get on a plane on Saturdays and Sundays, go to Bears game or whatever I was, I was doing. And uh, believe me, it would, I, I lost like, you know, I wasn't fat to begin with, George. I wasn't slender, handsome man like you, but I was losing weight. And one day on air on Friday afternoon, he just came to me and I just said, you know, that's it, everybody. I'm done. It's been great. I appreciate it. Mitch Rose and everybody, thank you. And I remember Molly, Mike Mulligan looking, and I mean, he was actually, there were tears in his eyes. It shocked him. It shocked me. It shocked everybody. The, the, the producers came to the window, the glass, just to look at us. And I don't know where it came from, but I just, I had to do it. I was going to miss my son playing football in high school. I was going to miss so many things that I just, uh, I probably should have told Mitch beforehand, but I also knew that sometimes, you know, in radio, they'll just say, Hey, by the way, you're done. So I just left. Oh, I know that note. very, I know that very well. Yes. And I'd always heard radio, man, <laughs> you're, you know, one day <laughs> it's accessible and, and good luck. hope you don't end up in the trough. So I left on a high note. I think we could have done quite really well. But, um, you know, talk radio is, I'm, I'm a writer, and I was getting away from what I do, what I am. Uh, you know, all these offers are out there, you know, TV, radio, other magazines. I was writing for ESPN. At some point, you just got to say, hey, this isn't all about making money. This isn't all about flying your flag, getting your name out there, man. This is about what do you believe in? What is real? What is true? What is your, what is your desire? What moves you? And, you know, I'll come back to it. I studied writing. That's my craft. I'm studying it to this very day. I'll study it till the day I'm dead. I work at it. It's not easy, but it's all I want to do. And I just, I was, you know, I was flying off in way too many directions. Now, let me tell you a story you don't know about Rick and me. And it's all about nicknames. Not sure where or when, but... Uh, someone kiddingly or maybe seriously called you T-Lander because someone <laughs> else mispronounced your name or whatever. And from then on, you saw me and started to refer to me as Georges Gorge as opposed to the wrestler by the name of Gorgeous George. What in the name of journalism prompted you to do that? Well, first of all, George, I think it's your 
uh, overall uh, innate beauty. <laughs> I saw you also, listen, there was a gorgeous George wrestler. I see you as being, you know, a guy out there hacking his way through the jungle. And I just, it just struck me, uh, it, you know, George's gorge. It just, uh, it's good. It, some things just fit. I was a guy that was always coming up with nicknames for people. I couldn't help it. I have nicknames for all my grandkids. I, you know, the one kid's name is Ben and it was Benjamin. And then I call him, uh, Benjamin. And then I call him the jammer. And now he's the jammer. Every time I see him, he's eight years old. Jammer. What's up? What's up, dude? You know, we'll high five. So, uh, yeah, it, it's just, I'm sorry. You should be George's gorge forever and people can call you whatever they want, but your proper name is that. Well, thank you very much for that. You're welcome. Has column writing changed from days when guys like yourself were the preeminent part of newspapers to now when newspapers are suffering badly and anyone, in essence, on the internet can spout a column or a blog or something on YouTube? Yeah, you hit it right there, George. The, the moment the internet appeared, it struck me, even in its very early nascent stages, that this had made the means of production available to anybody. Theoretically, everybody in the world is now a columnist. Theoretically, anybody can write a column about a World Series game or the NBA Finals, post it and reach everybody else in the world. Is the, the democratization of language and of, um, uh, you want to call it column writing, just writing in general, videos, you, you can become an influencer. These things didn't exist. It meant that all the things that used to be there that you needed a newspaper behind you to print actual paper, a magazine that could put four color uh, photos in it and distribute it around the country by airplanes and trains and printing presses, all that stuff, you know, uh, instantly didn't become irrelevant, but became an artifact, something from a, an earlier time. Uh, you know, back when I was writing for Sports Illustrated, if you wanted to write what is now called long form, you only had a few, a handful of venues where you could actually do it and reach just people in the United States. Now I write things online. I'll get comments from Sweden, from South America, from from China, from Japan, from everywhere. You know, Ireland, uh, these things are constant. The world is now just one small place. And a newspaper, you know, we just have our imprint, the belief that maybe we're offering you something you can't get elsewhere. Maybe it's quality, maybe it's research, maybe it is uh, archives, uh, something that we have it, it may be accessibility to uh, people uh, being at City Hall, being in the locker room. That's the only thing we have that the person, the citizen journalist doesn't have. And we need to promote that. You know, a lot of people don't know this, Rick, but among your many talents, you also had a band called the Del Crustaceans. Catching name. What were your biggest hits? <laughs> well, I'd say our, our biggest consistent hits are Honky Tonk Woman, uh, Double Shot of My Baby's Love, and, uh, and Shout. We do, at the end of the night, when everybody's hammered, you're at a formal party, doesn't matter what it is, it's a, a wedding, you do Shout, and we got a guy who's a professor at Fordham University now, but it lives in New York, but he flies in, he's been in a band for... Uh, 45 years, 46 years, uh, bald as a billiard ball, dance like crazy and sings that thing. We all get on the floor, you know, and then you get up, you do shout just like straight out of animal house. So we've been doing it since the get go from 1971. That's, that's our signature song. I'd have to say. <laughs> there are awards and then there are awards, but I have to believe the ring Lardner award you received in 2014 was especially gratifying because it was presented to you by the late, great Sports Illustrated writer and longtime NPR commentator, Frank DeFord. Yeah, Frank, God rest his soul. I wish he had gone on and on. What a talented, brilliant writer he was and, and a wonderful man. He started the national, the short-lived national. It had great intentions, but it just couldn't work. It was a, a newspaper covering the whole country did that back in, I want to say, 1990. 
only lasted maybe two years, but it was a great venture. He helped all of us learn how to write what, what used to be called a, a, a bonus piece in Sports Illustrated, a long story. It could be three, four, five, six, 8,000 words long. Uh, it was basically like a mini book. And Frank could do it in such a colorful way that he was the predecessor between him and Dan Jenkins and another writer from back in those days, Roy Blunt, the beginning of Sports Illustrated. They gave way to other just stupendous writers, Gary Smith, who wrote mm -hmm. Mike DeFord, uh, Rick Riley, who kind of picked up the mantle from Dan Jenkins. Roy Blunt, you have Steve Russian, who came after him, where the language just with puns and plays on words. Those guys, you know, uh, Frank DeFord, I just, um, man, if they built a statue, made a statue of him and showed him with uh, Sports Illustrated magazine in his hand, uh, you know, wearing a purple tie. He loved the color purple. He always had a purple tie or a purple shirt. Uh, it, it would, it wouldn't be too much for me. Uh, that was, that was truly a great moment to have Frank do that. I ask this final question to all my guests, Rick, if not for sports writing, what would you have been? Uh, I think that I might've gotten into something with my hands, carpentry perhaps, and had built that into some kind of building construction business or whatever. I wanted to be a writer. I didn't really have, uh, I, I didn't have a fallback. Uh, I was, you know, through thick or thin, I was going to do it. If it hadn't worked out and it came very close to not working it out, I think I would have switched to something entirely differently, George, because I like to paint. I like to do things. Uh, I'm not the most skilled carpenter, but I think I would have learned, been a good apprentice. And I think something that would have had to do with architecture and building might have been my fallback. Thank you, Rick Tellender, for telling me a story I don't know. My thanks to ABC News, Megan Kelly today on NBC, and the sports writers on TV for those memorable highlights. And big thanks to TJ Reeves, who worked diligently behind the scenes to put this podcast on the map. Will Hatzel, whose deft editing makes this podcast sound a whole lot better, and T.T. Shinkin, whose graphics are an artistic delight. And thanks again to our sponsors, the Vienna Beef Company and the Polina Market for their generous support. Join me next time for another episode of Tell Me a Story I Don't Know. I'm George Hoffman, and that's all she wrote. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member? For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.